0: Hi, my name's Tina Waldron. Welcome to the podcast, and I hope you love it and share it with others. This podcast is all about evangelism and mission, sharing Jesus in natural ways, in ways that we can all do. I interview people right across Australia and also overseas to hear what's working and how that ultimately applies to our lives, no matter who we are. Some weeks I jump on and do a little teaching myself. I hope it's helpful for you. Don't forget to check out our other free resources on our website. Now, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to the Win-Win Evangelism podcast. My name's Tina Waldrum from Evangelism in Australia. I have an exciting, exciting discussion for you today. I'm talking with Dr. Camille Majdili from London, and he is from Teach All Nations. We're talking about Israel and neighborly conversations. Welcome to you, Camille.
1: Hello, Tina, and God bless Australia and anybody else that's listening to this podcast.
0: It is brilliant to have you along. For those that have never heard of Dr. Camille, Camille actually grew up in Los Angeles. He is born to Arab American parents and he went to the Middle East and did a master's degree there and preached his first sermon on Mount Zion. He truly has a global ministry, 25 plus years traveling the globe and very much talking into this space of the Middle East and end times. A a true expert of lots of people on the show but Truly, truly an expert in this space. Camille, tell us a little bit about your background, particularly, you know, what's your connection then to being on the ground in Israel?
1: My connection is that I, as a young born again Christian, being born and raised in the United States and thoroughly Americanized, gave myself for mission at a mission conference in the church. And then I waited on God. As per a audio cassette tape by Joy Dawson by that title, Waiting on God, uh, she's a Kiwi and a luminary with youth with the mission. I did exactly what she said because she's very practical, being from this part of the world, and next thing I knew, I ended up in Jordan, Israel, and Egypt, and then eventually ended up in Israel studying at a master's level.
0: Incredible. What is amazing, also, Camille, is you are so into this geographic center of the world. How many trips have you taken people to the Holy Land on?
1: Just Holy Land tours alone have been like about 44, but that's not counting the many visits and the sojourn I made when I was younger. And of course, that's where I met my wife, Leanne, from Geelong, Victoria. I met her in Jerusalem. It sounds very fairy tale like, but uh, let me tell you, was very real.
0: Just incredible. I, I don't know anybody on the planet, Camille, that has been in the nation of Israel so many times that knows so much about the country from a Christian perspective and a secular perspective. Let's just talk about Israel. So, what I want to do is I want to get some basics. We could have a six-year conference with you, Camille, and dive fully into everything that you know. What I want to do is try and get things down to a simple level here today so that I myself and others have some basic understandings that we can share and engage with our neighbours that may raise these Christian concepts. Israel's not just a special place for the Christians, it's actually a holy space, isn't it, for many faiths? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, depending on who you're talking to, where the land itself has a lot of attention by God in Scripture. It has an amazing history, as well as amazing topography. You know, it's just a little tiny postage stamp of real estate, but within this land of 420 kilometers long and 110 kilometers wide, you've got everything from moonlight deserts to snow-capped mountains, to sandy beaches, to below sea level terrain. The Jordan Valley is below sea level, Sea of Galilee is below sea level, Dead Sea is the lowest point on the face of the Earth, and then throughout its history, a checkerboard of different humanities. Of course, pre-Joshua, you had the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Bergesites, uh you know, all the little sights and mites. And, and then, of course, it never changed. A lot of history, a lot of heritage, and of course, theologically and prophetically significant too. So there's a lot in the mix.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that then. So, theologically, what, what's, the, what's the basic understandings that you think Christians should know about the country of Israel?
1: Well, on its basic theology, and this is something I didn't know when I first started walking with God. This, is, this has come over many, many years. But to keep it simple, God called a man named Abraham, and he was chosen, not out of favoritism, but out of election. Favoritism is where you favor one party at the expense of everybody else, but election is where you're chosen of God to be a blessing to everybody else. Vastly different. So Abraham is called to the land. He was from ancient Mesopotamia or Iraq, comes to the land. He didn't even know where he was going. And God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land. And in this land, with your seed, your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. And of course, the seed, according to Paul, I believe in Galatians, is in the singular, meaning Christ. Christ is the seed of Abraham. And that's the first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. So it's the son of Abraham in the land of Abraham bringing redemption to the world. That's, in a nutshell, what's it about.
0: Yeah, absolutely it is. And let's talk about Jerusalem. Tell us a little bit about the big things that we should understand about Jerusalem.
1: Jerusalem was a Jebusite's enclave, a heathen city for the first thousand of its 4,000-year history. Everything changed with David. David managed to do what neither Joshua did, the judges did, or Saul did. They failed to do what David did. He captured Jerusalem, and he kept it. He made this heathen enclave into his royal city, his capital. He made it into God's city, meaning because he moved the tabernacle there, so God now resided in Jerusalem and it became known as the City of the Great King. And the City of the Great King is Messiah's city. The Messiah will rule and reign from that city forever. Of course, we think of it as the New Jerusalem, and depending on your eschatology, He'll rule and reign from the Old Jerusalem before the New. So, Jerusalem, it was also prophesied 2,500 years ago in Zechariah 12 and 14, that this city would be the center of international Concern, controversy, and eventually conflict—we're seeing that Tina before our very eyes. Jerusalem is an international obsession. It's the most well-known city in the world, even though it has none of the ingredients of greatness. And I believe you can trace it all the way back to a man called David.
0: Yeah, I mean, it—it is quite remarkable, Camille, because most secular people know (laughs) the city of Jerusalem and. Are wondering why there is so much controversy around there. You use the word city of God. Is that something that you think would resonate if we talked to neighbors at this time about Israel and said Jerusalem itself is the city of God? How would we unpack that with people that don't know Jesus, do you think?
1: City of God. Well, basically, God visited the city in the past. In the form of Jesus, and even before Jesus, in the Shekinah or Shekinah glory of the temple, that was that glory was (laughs) the presence of God, which was seemed to be only localized in Jerusalem. Of course, it was there in the time of the wilderness sojourn of Moses. But anyway, it means that not only God has visited there, but God's not just a visitor. It says several times in the Old Testament that God put His name there on this city. So he's claimed it because of his servant David, a man after his own heart. Very special arrangement, but again, it's leading to the coming of Messiah, the King of the Jews, and that's what Jesus was known as, and that's why he was crucified. He was the King of the Jews.
0: Yeah, amazing. So I can imagine myself having quite a wonderful conversation with neighbors just about this, about the city of God, that presence of God dwelling there, Jesus returning there. Tell us a little bit about your own personal views on that, about Jesus returning to the city of God. How do you see that?
1: How do I see it? Good question. I see it just as I read it. (laughs) Jesus is going to come back to Jerusalem He may make a detour before he gets there, but that's another story. We'll leave that for another time. But he will go there. And in Zechariah 14, I believe it's verse 4, it says, His feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives. Preceding his victory ascent on the Mount of Olives is, of course, an international war. uh, Not just a world war, but we, we call it Armageddon. And that's the best name I can think of. It's the one everyone recognizes. I think even secular people will recognize the word Armageddon or 666. It's pretty much a household name. But first is the war. Then comes the Prince of Peace on the Mount of Olives. And basically, game up, kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord in Christ. That's as succinct as I can make it.
0: You know that is just beautiful. That's the best I've heard it too, Camille, that is extremely succinct. You have just made that so easy for me that I can definitely have that conversation. So let's talk about the conflict that's always in this region of the world. Can we have a little bit of a yeah, obviously right now it's just terrible what is going on, but let's talk about the conflict that's been there for a long time. Where where is that this come from?
1: Well, there's several layers here. It's uh, not one size fits all. But what I would say is the conflict that's begun on the 7th of October, it has captured everyone's attention worldwide. It's not even like Russia and Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine are basically off the map at the moment, at least for world attention, because of the conflict in Israel and the Middle East. This is incredible but there's a few things. One is, of course, some call it a blood feud, kind of like the Hatfield and the McCoys, the Israelis and the Arabs. There may be an element of that, but it doesn't tell the whole story, and it can be very misleading because there are very many instances of Jews and Arabs getting on just fine. After all, they are both cousins and they are neighbors. It's not like they need a getting-to-know-you session. They have been knowing each other for centuries. That's one aspect. Then there's the political aspect of who owns Palestine and who owns Jerusalem. Technically, Jerusalem is a distinct and separate issue to who owns Palestine. But that discussion continues on as it's been going for the last 100 years. Then there's Islamism, which basically is political Islam or militant Islam. And remember, Islam is big. It's not monolithic. different strokes for different folks worldwide, but this this version has a very uncompromising view, and it's not even just that they think Palestine belongs to the Palestinians and not to the Jews. They actually think in terms of a global caliphate, and some have even suggested that Jerusalem be their capital, which if that's the case, it'll be the first time in history that Jerusalem was the capital of an Islamic entity, although Islam has, of course, possessed Jerusalem for many, many centuries. It was never capital territory, let's put it that way. And then, of course, there's the spiritual dimension. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18 comes into play. There are spiritual principalities and powers at work in this, including the prince of Persia. And so, you read about him in Daniel, I believe, Daniel 10. That's an element that blows a lot of people's minds because they can barely comprehend the natural side and the political side and the theological side, let alone the spiritual power side. So there you have it.
0: It's just so complicated, isn't it? There's just so many layers to it. It's the center of the earth. Literally. (laughs) Quite literally the center of the earth. Can there be peace there, Camille? When the Bible says pray for peace there, what, what is it meaning?
1: Well, it, it means precisely that, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, because of its election as the city of God. Think of Jerusalem as being elected as Abraham was elected, that God put his name on that city, and he sent his son to that city, first to die for our sins, and the second time around to rule God's kingdom, because that's God's agenda ultimately anyway, Tina, is a kingdom, his kingdom. And, of course, the kingdom has a king, and the king is, of course, Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham, son of God. Therefore, we have to see it, first of all, as Jerusalem is the kingdom, capital, and from there, the powers of darkness will do everything they can to thwart that agenda. They know they they won't stop it completely. It will happen. They're well aware of it, but they want to delay the reckoning for as long as they can. And that's why we have so much conflict over this city.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about, Camille, this center of the earth space, this incredible country of Israel. You know, we're talking about it from the Christian perspective, but many of us have neighbors that are not from a Christian faith tradition at all. They may be from Islamic countries, they may have different views, different faith views. Give us an insight into people's mindsets outside of Christianity on how they view Israel.
1: All right, people from outside of Christianity, how they view Israel. Well, first of all, they're all aware there is an Israel because of its high profile in global news. As far as how they understand it, I think they don't understand it very much. They know it's a point of conflict. They know it's a tourist destination. They know it's important to key religions, the monotheistic religions. They're probably somewhat aware of that depending on who they are and where they are. But as far as the details, no, they wouldn't be aware. And frankly, many Christians aren't either. However. Name recognition, number one. I I think of a story of a former Prime Minister of Israel, Golda Meir, who before she was a Prime Minister, she went on a goodwill journey to Africa, representing the Israeli government. And she told the Africans, I don't know what country, and it was probably in the 1950s, but she told the Africans she was from Jerusalem. And they stepped back in awe. Jerusalem, you're from Jerusalem? isn't Jerusalem in heaven? (laughs) So that was an African version in the 1950s. I think that would be a good thing for you to do in your evangelism specialty, is to do a survey to the people you're reaching out to. What do you think? But I would say they recognize it, but they may not know the deep meaning. And I'd say that's for everybody, including many Christians as well. And possibly even Jewish people may have they'd have more interest and more knowledge about it because of their heritage, but they may not know much more beyond that. Some of the things I explained to you, they may not know.
0: It's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? So because so many people do know about Israel, if they didn't know about it, they, they certainly know more about it now, as you said, where it's on a global scale right now um, with the tragedy that's going on there. Think about your neighbours there in London, Camille. People that live around you, just if they said to you, oh, Camille, just tell me a couple of interesting facts and you're thinking to yourself, I want to somehow connect my Christianity or, you know, I want to connect it to this conversation. They say to you, Camille, I want a couple of interesting things about Israel. What would you say to them so that you could kind of entwine these things all together?
1: Well, Tina, what I'm about to say applies not just to Jerusalem and Israel, applies to so many things in our world, I would say to them, did you know that what you're seeing today in the news was prophesied thousands of years ago in the Bible? That is a very good way to start.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant, because then it opens so many conversations, doesn't it, about what even, what's prophecy? Is the Bible even relevant?
1: Right. Well, let me give you a quick example. Mark Twain, the famous American author, made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land in 1867. Back then, it was run down, it was depopulated, it was in rack and ruin, and he comments about it. And He's very funny and he's very satirical, but he said that the land itself was sunburnt, brown, heartbroken. Jerusalem was a chicken coop upended on its side, who would want to live in this miserable place? Something to that effect. And yet, if you had told him that the whole world would be focused on the city, the United Nations resolutions, wars, rumors of wars, constant publicity, he would have laughed you out of the room. Who would care about this dust choked flea bitten Ottoman village? If only he could see it now. Today, it is exactly as Zechariah said it would become a burdensome stone for all nations, and it is. It is the international obsession. They, they, they can't get sleep at night if you're working in foreign ministries because what do we do about the Jerusalem question? Why do they care? Because they believe it's the key between war and peace. If we can solve the Jerusalem question, we will have peace, and if we can't solve it, we're going to have not just a war but a world war, which is what Zechariah 14 is about.
0: Yep, it is a perfect opportunity Camille to to be talking with people about that, to be raising that prophetic piece what's been spoken about <laughs> a long time ago about Israel and about Jerusalem. So let me ask you a question about the conflict that's now going on there. It astounds me that there is views out there that don't see this as wrong. You talk to us. Tell me what you think about what is going on there and the issue with Hamas.
1: Well, you brought up a good point, Tina, and that is why doesn't everyone see it the way we see it? You've seen a barbaric invasion, civilians massacred. I won't even go into the details. They are horrific. It was In many ways, the the worst attack on Jewish people and death toll since the Holocaust and some of the activities in that event were worse than what happened in the Holocaust, if if that could be possible, and indeed it was. How do we understand it? Well, first of all, from the point of the radical Islamist, it makes perfect sense. And they celebrate what they believe is an attack on their eternal enemy, all right? Now, not everyone in Islam feels this way, of course, but that's some. But then you've got the secular left that is also rejoicing, because let's face it, Tina. For the last few decades, we've had an infiltration of cultural Marxism in all the organs of Western society. It was, I have to say, it was a brilliant plan executed by Herbert Marcuse and his disciples like Angela Davis and. Paulo Ferrer and all this, but what they did is cultural Marxism, in a nutshell, Divides people up into the oppressed and the oppressor. The oppressors are the white male Christians, the oppressed is everybody else. Oppressors can do no good, and the oppressed can do no evil. So therefore, this conflict and the rejoicing from the secular left is, of course, part of that whole deal. They see Israel as the oppressor, the, the Goliath, they see the Palestinians as the victims, the David, so they can't do anything wrong. They, whatever they're doing is because they've been oppressed. So it's really the oppressor's fault that this has all happened. This is a common refrain throughout so much Western, not even discourse, but screeching in the public square. So two seemingly different points of view. One is Islamist, one is the secular left, but they do partner together and they... Uh, do you have more in common than we realize?
0: It is amazing just to even fathom that I've spoken to Christians as well, um Camille, that aren't wouldn't see it as a tragedy as as I would view it, and that's okay. I'm happy to listen to everybody's opinion, but I wanted to have a bit of a discussion today. Where is it heading? You yourself are saying, well, we're talking this Armageddon language um Are we that close to something like that, Camille? What's your personal belief?
1: That's an excellent question. My preliminary answer, which is subject to change, I go back to Matthew 24, I believe it's verse 6, where Jesus says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's for sure. We have been hearing that of late, and probably the war drums have beaten more heavily in the last couple years or so. Than I've heard probably in my whole life, apart from a potential clash during the Cold War, and even when I grew up, there was no there was no imminent clash in the Cold War. So it's probably the worst in my whole lifetime as I hear right now. The second thing he says is, "See that you be not troubled." Now, for the biblical Christian led by the Holy Spirit, they have every reason to hope, despite the dire headlines, because we have. Christ, the living hope, and he's giving us an early warning service. It's called prophecy. He says, see that you be not troubled. These things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. This is what I call the great shaking, Hebrews 12, the end of the chapter. Great shaking has at least two main purposes. One is to wake up those that are sleeping and sober up those that are drunken because it's amazing how situationally unaware people are despite the vortex of activity going on. The second purpose of the shaking, which is explicitly mentioned in Hebrews, is to make room for God's kingdom by removing the temporal realms. They're on their way out, they've been given their pink notice, and now the kingdom of God has come in. These things must come to pass, the end is not yet. So, That verse, Matthew 24, verse 6, is what I would stand on at this present time.
0: Yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you, Camille. Wow, this is a fascinating discussion. I'm going to ask you one final question, Camille, as we finish up our interview here. I can't help but wonder because I'm hearing a lot of, you're very prophetic. I've got to say that. I've always known you to be like that. For the listeners, Camille and I have known each other for a very long time. Um, Camille, in fact, was my lecturer Principal. Principal, thank you, of the Bible college that I went to in Melbourne, and I was just fascinating back then. But everybody is talking about the shaking from different angles, and you've raised it again. How do you see this situation in Israel, the situation overseas in the Ukraine on the back of COVID? Is there a connection?
1: There may be a very profound connection. I can't outline all of it. But I do say it's part of the great universal end time shaking, which will happen in between kingdoms, worldly kingdoms, and Christ's kingdom. The exact details of the connection, I can only comment from case to case.
0: Yeah. Yep, great answer. It's fascinating. It's an incredible time to be alive in terms of a Christian and watching um, Bible prophecy unfold and seeing what's going on around the world. So this has been an incredible conversation. I've been talking with Dr. Camille Majdili, um, who's based in London. We've been having a great time. Camille's website, Teach All Nations, which is n.org.au and you can stay connected to Camille and his incredible ministry. I'm going to drop all of that information into. our show notes today as well also i'm going to have some books in there things that camille has written um, that you can go and check out have a look at buy download all of those things so that you can keep exploring into this space so camille thank you so much for your time today
1: been a pleasure tina god bless you and god bless australia
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I trust it's been helpful for you. Hey, don't forget to check out our free sample course on missionwithgod.com forward slash free sample. Hope it's a blessing to you. See you next week.